The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. And in your Bibles, would you please find the book of Exodus, chapter 4. The book of Exodus and chapter 4. Today we are finishing the first section of Exodus. And then we're going to take a break from Exodus. And we're going to do the first section in the book of Revelation. And our plan, actually, for the next couple of years is to do section Exodus, section Revelation. I mean, Exodus is a long book. And I think we're going to get that way, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. And a nice variety of the genre in Scripture, the type of literature, while I think seeing a main theme of God's rule and reign over all for the salvation of his people. So we want that cumulative effect happening in our hearts. Today we finish this first section in Exodus, I have labeled this sermon, The Obligation of Grace. Mindy's going to pray for us and read our passage. Join me in prayer, please. Father God, we thank you for this morning to gather together as your people, a community of faith. And we come before you now to ask that your spirit would enlighten us that you would give us ears to hear the truth of this passage and that you would enable us to act upon this passage as well in our lives. We ask that you would make us attentive. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Scripture reading from Exodus 4, 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I, <clears throat> but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. And he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, 
with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mindy. A fascinating passage. One that I think asks us a question. How do you hold grace and obedience together? How do you hold God's grace and a call to obedience together? The Bible holds those together. Are you doing so? Are you holding grace and obedience together appropriately in your life? You see, we often tend to accent one or the other. Some tend to be all grace, but little or no thought to obedience. I mean, who cares about obedience? That's legalism. They can think. Others are strong on obedience with little or no grace in their lives. What, what role does grace have? We need to work for God is all they can think about. How should we hold these together as the Bible does? Well, we get some insight here in this unusual passage. It is, I believe, structured a bit like a sandwich. So that's how we're going to approach it. Two slices of bread on either side of some mystery meat in the middle. So I want to show you the bread, the outer parts of the sandwich, and then we'll focus on the meat in particular, the middle of the sandwich. So first the bread. First, the bread. Notice the first piece of bread, verses 18 through 20. It reflects a distinct obedience by Moses. Despite his previous objections that we saw last week, Moses now heads back to Egypt per God's command. God says, go back. And Moses is taking his family back. Back from where he fled. 40 years earlier. He's obeying God's call, though, though perhaps a little reluctantly, there is this odd interaction with his father-in-law, Jethro, where Moses doesn't seem to tell him the full truth about why they're going back. So maybe Moses is not 100% sure about all this, but he's going to try it out. Or maybe he just thinks Jethro will never understand what happened to me just now. Either way, he's going. He goes with God this time. Did you notice? With the staff of God firmly in hand in verse 20. That's one piece of bread. Then the other piece of bread in verses 27 to 31 also highlights obedience. God sends Aaron to Moses, and they meet at last. Again, perhaps after 40 years of not seeing each other. What a reunion this must have been for these two brothers. Can you imagine all they had to catch up on? Moses, Moses, 
We thought you might be dead. I can't believe it. You're still alive. And, and what? God appeared to you in a burning bush that wasn't consumed. What? And, and he's sending you back to Egypt to help deliver our people from slavery. What? And I'm to be your spokesperson? Really? What an incredible moment. But notice the emphasis in the text. Notice the intentional repetition of the word all. Verse 28. Moses told Aaron all, all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak. And all, all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all, all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words, all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. All is repeated four times, giving the distinct impression of intentional and complete obedience. Moses and Aaron do all God commanded with the result, the happy result in verse 31. The people believe hearing God had heard and seen of their affliction and oppression, and they bow their heads and worship. So you've got obedience in the beginning, obedience at the end. The passage begins well and ends well, but what's it all about? Because the meat of the sandwich in verses 21 to 26, well, not everything is hunky-dory there. The middle section is, you could say, an account of three sons. Three sons, I think, teaching one main lesson. I would put it like this. The grace of sonship brings the, ob the obligation of obedience. Let me say that again. The grace of sonship, the grace of sonship brings the obligation of obedience. God tells Moses to do the miracles he has put in Moses' power, and yet God says that Pharaoh will not let his people go. Notice why in the second half of verse 21. God says, I will harden his, Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. Now, we're going to encounter this a number of times in the book of Exodus. And we find it appears in three different ways, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart. Sometimes it just says, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Statement of fact. And sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart like here. Now, we're not going to plumb the depths of this today, but suffice to say, all the above are true. Pharaoh is clearly not a good guy, not a good guy. He has kept the covenant people of God enslaved. It would seem God at times gives Pharaoh over to his own stubbornness, like described in Romans chapter 1, the frightening reality of God sovereignly giving us over to what we want, to our own destruction. But here, here the point seems to be to recognize that God is in charge, that God is ruling over his universe, 
and ruling over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart. But where is the grace I mentioned? Well, in verse 22, we find the first time in Scripture we read the following. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. First time this appears. Israel is my firstborn son. This nation of slaves with nothing to offer God. This group of nobodies in Pharaoh's eyes, of them God says, you're my firstborn son. You're my preeminent one, my beloved sons and daughters. And why does he love them like this? Because he does. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses reflects on this and says, God loves you and chose you because he loves you. No more explanation provided. He says the same to his children here. I love you and chose you because I love you. So God's people are objects of his electing grace here. And so we'll experience God's saving grace. This is hinted at in verse 23. Verse 23, Moses is to say to Pharaoh, let my son, let my son go that he may serve me or worship me is the idea. If you, Pharaoh, refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Do you see the juxtaposition of these two sons? Pharaoh, you keep my son enslaved, I will deprive you of your son. That, that's just divine justice. And a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of the Passover. When the firstborn sons of Egypt die. But God's judgment passes over his people because of the sacrifice of a substitute. That's grace. But this idea of God's firstborn son is, friends, pregnant with significance. It is pregnant with meaning. It carries all the way through Israel's history and her kings in particular until it reaches the climax in Jesus Christ where God says, this is my beloved son, my ultimate son, the son who fulfills all that Israel was to be as God's son. And we experience this grace of sonship through that son as his own beloved sons and daughters. Through Jesus, God plucks people out of the orphanage of this world, delivering us from slavery to sin, that we too, that we too might know, worship, and enjoy this God. That's the grace of sonship here. But we also find an obligation. One more son is referenced. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, there is some ambiguity in the text. It just says the Lord met him. 
and sought to put him to death. It actually does not specify who the him is here. It might be Moses. It might be Moses' firstborn son. Nevertheless, I think we can say safely, God's anger is clearly directed toward Moses. Another thing that's strange is that God could have easily killed Moses or his son in an instant. This seems to be a disciplinary teaching moment. Yes, one of the most serious kind. Perhaps a near-fatal illness. We don't know. What we can say is Moses begins well and ends well in this passage, but in between there is this vital lesson about obedience that he must learn. And once again, once again, the women in Moses' life save the day. Verse 25. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood, of blood to me. So he, God, let him alone. Moses experiences his own private Passover here. So he, God, let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, I confess, it is an overused illustration, but it's helpful here nonetheless. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are about to introduce the four children to Aslan, the lion representing Jesus. But the children are not so sure they want to meet Aslan. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. A man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It's overused. But Lewis's portrayal of Aslan is precisely how God reveals himself in this passage. Not safe. Most definitely not safe. I think Moses could tell you that. He's not safe, but he's good. And to see that, we need to recall the context and a vital verse from chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24 reads, God heard their groaning and, do you remember? God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In Exodus, God is acting upon that covenant of grace with Abraham, like we talked about last week. Gracious promises 
of a people, a land, and blessing to all peoples of the earth. God extends those gracious promises in Genesis 12. He affirms them with a covenantal ceremony in Genesis 17, and then in Genesis uh, 15, rather, in the Genesis 15, and then in Genesis 17, in Genesis 17, God attaches some obedience to that grace, giving or actually requiring the sign of the covenant. Genesis 17, verse 10. This is my covenant, God says, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That's the sign of the covenant. Verse 14 reads, any, circum any uncircumcised male, that's Moses' son in Exodus 4, any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now we see the issue in Exodus 4. By failing to circumcise his own son, Moses is disobeying the God-given condition for his covenant of grace. Let me say that again. By failing to circumcise his own son, Moses is not obeying this God-given condition, or we could say obligation, for this covenant of grace. This is when God is good, but not safe. Friends, he's not safe when his mercy is mocked. He's not safe when his grace is cheapened or trifled with or taken for granted. He's not safe if we presume on his grace by neglecting the condition of that grace, as Moses does here. But, but Zipporah identifies the problem. We don't know how, but she did. Grabs a flint knife, performs some emergency surgery, circumcising her son, thus obeying the sign of God's covenant, giving her that sign of God's covenant of grace. And by her actions, Zipporah is then in effect saying, we're in too. Now me, our sons, we're in, the people of God. Not just you, Moses, we're in too, part of God's covenant people. Zipporah's actions say, I'm going to make sure we're in. In with the people of God. The question for us is, are you in too? And I don't mean just get baptized. I mean, are you genuinely in with the people of God? Do you know, do you know this grace of sonship evidenced by this obligation of obedience? See, there is grace here. There is much grace in this passage, but there is a condition 
that Moses failed to fulfill, and we should learn from that. We often talk about God's unconditional acceptance, that God accepts us unconditionally, but friends, that's actually not true. God's saving acceptance of fallen humans is never, ever unconditional. There is a massive condition attached to God's saving acceptance. You must be in Christ. So the obedience required for us is what the book of Romans calls the obedience of faith. I think that's the most direct connection. What the book of Romans calls the obedience of saving faith, genuinely turning from sin, genuinely, savingly trusting in Christ. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus like that, thank you for being here. Thank you for coming. God in his love commands you to repent. You might be a young person here. You might be growing up in this church. You might be a guest. God commands you to turn from going your own way, and he commands you to trust only in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection to wash away your sins and bring you to God. God commands that, and I urge you to respond to him. And if you have believed, friends, if you have believed, you need to know that the grace of sonship is being born out in your life through this sense of the obligation of obedience, this obedient faith, as the Apostle Paul says, examine yourself. 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. So how do we do that? How do we test ourselves? Zipporah made sure they were in with the people of God. She acted decisively to make sure they were participating in that covenant of grace. How do we make sure we're in with the people of God as well? How can we have that assurance and that confidence that we're in with the people of God ourselves? Well, the Apostle John helps us. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 John, he gives us three elements indicators to assure us that we have eternal life in Christ. Three ways to know you're in with the people of God. What you believe, how you love, and how you live. That's the book of 1 John. That's the assurance that you're in with God's people. What you believe about Jesus, how you love Jesus's people, and how you live in light of Jesus. Now, that's not, if you're thinking legalism, that's not legalism. That's how the good news transforms the genuine believer so that you know you're in. Sung and I went on a date recently to a jazz concert, a really good jazz trio in La Jolla. At one point, however, I look around survey the people sitting around me, and I saw almost everyone moving to the beat of this fine jazz music. It's quite fascinating. The lady in front of us is moving her head back and forth. The guy sitting next to Sung is moving his body side to side, like this. This guy over here is shaking his head up and down. 
everybody around me is tapping their foot. There is this music, this good jazz that moves your body. And in a similar way, the good news moves your heart and life. As this good jazz almost seems to move people physically, unconsciously, so the good news, friends, it moves your heart and life. The music of God's love, who chooses to love you just because he loved you. The music of his mercy in Christ, who stood in our place as our substitute, that God's wrath would pass over us. The music of his grace, the grace of the ultimate son, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That music moves in the believer's soul that becomes evident in your life. That beat will show itself in what you believe, how you love, and how you live. Our hearts get tuned to the music of God's grace of sonship. So that is the, as it were, obedience that allows us to know we're in. So let me give you three exhortations, three exhortations to help us stay tuned to the jazz music of God's glorious grace in Christ. Let me give you three exhortations. Exhortation number one, stay close to the truth of Christ. Stay close to the truth of Christ. The Apostle John puts it bluntly, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Kids and teens, I thought of you here. I, I realize you're going to form your own ideas and convictions about many, many, many things. That's part of growing up. But what you must not form are your own ideas about Jesus Christ. That's not up for grabs. We must ask, you must ask instead, what do the scriptures say? That's always the crucial question to ask. What do the scriptures say? And the scriptures say that Jesus Christ is the God-man. God come in the flesh, born of a virgin who lived a perfect life, died as our substitute on a cross, rose bodily, physically from the grave, ascended back to heaven where he reigns and from where he will return. It's really what we recited in the Nicene Creed. Those are the essentials. Salvation hangs on those essentials. Stay close, close rather, close to the, tro the truth of Christ. Exhortation number two, stay close to the people of Christ. Stay close to the people of Christ. The Apostle John also writes, love is from God. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Did you catch that? Love for each other is a vital way to know you're in. Because that kind of love for each other is not normal and natural. If we love the people of God, despite all of our differences, 
no matter our different preferences that we may have, no matter our different practices that we may have, despite all those differences, if you genuinely love the people around you right now, and that means it's very tangible. We're not talking abstract, theoretical, some people out there somewhere, I love them. If you genuinely love the people around you right now, as representative of the people of God. That's a really good sign. You've been born of God, John says, and you're in with the people of God. That's part of why we need the local church so badly. Stay close to the people of Christ. And the third exhortation, friends, stay close to your need of Christ. Stay close to your need of Christ. John again writes, if we walk in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Did you hear that? Walking in the light as he is in the light. Dealing roundly with our sin, being transparent as appropriate with our sin is also a really, really good sign that you're in with the people of God. This is not perfectionism. This is the work of the gospel, the jazz music of the gospel moving in you such that you walk in the light as he is in the light and the blood of Jesus, the son of God, cleanses us from all sin. What you believe, how you love, how you live, this can assure you today that you're in. This can give you fresh assurance that you are one of God's beloved people and you leave here today more assured, more certain, more aware of God's love for you right now. That's how you know the music of his grace is thumping in your soul. That's how you know the, the beat of sonship is moving in your heart. That the grace of sonship is getting lived out in this obedient faith toward Christ. And with that in mind, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together in response. So those who are going to serve us, please prepare to do so. And this is an opportunity, as we say almost every week, to celebrate what Christ has done. It is that. The scripture also says that this is an opportunity to examine ourselves in 1 Corinthians 11. Not, please hear this, not with some morbid introspection, not evaluating, have I been obedient enough this week to earn God's favor? You haven't, nor have I. It's simply an opportunity to make sure our lives and relationships are reflecting the music of the gospel of grace. And if in some way they're not, to resolve in our hearts to make that right as soon as possible. So let's pray together. Let's take a moment to appropriately examine and then celebrate the good news of our Savior. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. 
Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.